Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. The challenges of accurate prediction of nutritional needs, particularly energy requirements, in critical care patients is well known. Recent developments have allowed indirect calorimetry to be more easily deployed in the clinical environment. So what does this mean for ICU practice? Juana Tatuku is a dietitian and the Nutritional Program Research Fellow from the ANZICS Research Centre, and she joins me to explore this in more detail. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Baxter Healthcare, and we're grateful to them for their support. Juana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Um, it's fair to say that uh, indirect calorimetry is well known, but not widely implemented across the globe. What do you suspect are the reasons for this? Yep. Um, so I definitely agree with that. Um, I think the main barriers to adopting this technology nationally is accessibility to devices. Um, and I think it's fair to say that most dietitians and other clinicians would like to have access to this technology but devices are not routinely purchased within hospitals at present. Um, and although the cost is actually not that high when you compare it to other technologies um, used in a hospital and in particular in the ICU where my research focus lies, um, the cost is still not being covered by a particular department. Um, so some other barriers to using IC, I think in, in the past there's been previously a lack of research data to support its use and therefore justify the costs of purchasing this device. Um, manpower and skills needed to complete measurements, especially in a busy clinical um, setting, as well as time taken to complete measurements, uh, which in my experience gets close to the 60-minute mark um, when you take into account um, device setup calibration through to device cleanup. Wana, you mentioned that many dietitians would be very keen to get their hands on this sort of data. In what ways would it improve services that are delivered and, and help dietitians to prescribe nutrition? Um, so I think that the potential benefits of indirect calorimetry stem mainly from the ability to measure and not estimate energy requirements. So the ability to provide accurate, individualised and tailored nutrition support and minimise those risks of under and overfeeding, um, especially, um, I guess, again, putting on my ICU hat throughout ICU admission. Um, so that may help to then um, improve patient outcomes from hard outcomes like mortality through to um, other clinical outcomes, as well as nutrition and functional outcomes um, by providing enough nutrition to promote recovery and also help potentially attenuating muscle loss as well. Um, but I guess it's also important to keep in mind that we do not know what the ideal amount of energy to provide an ICU patient is, um, and it's quite a controversial um, topic um, with more recent data suggesting that you should meet no more than 70% of requirements in the first three days of admission and slowly titrate energy provision. Um, but I guess regardless of the energy target you select. So whether it be 50% or 100%, indirect calorimetry can be used as a tool by dietitians um, to help measure requirements and then aid, aid our management plans. Can we just come back to one of those uh, things that you just mentioned about under and overfeeding? How yeah. common is that? And when you see it as a dietitian in the intensive care unit, what does that look like? What are you seeing in, in patients? Yeah. Um, so 
Underfeeding is probably the more common thing that we see. Um, And in practice, we frequently deliver probably about 60% or even less of the energy that we target. Um, So it's hard to see the immediate effects of underfeeding in a patient, um, mainly because patients lose weight regardless. They, you know, lose weight, muscle mass, regardless of the nutrition we provide. So it's hard to sort of um, see the impacts of underfeeding um, immediately. Overfeeding has also been shown to occur and I guess is a risk when you use, um, more so a risk when you use um, probably a combination of enteral and parenteral nutrition. Um, And I guess some of those risks early in admission, um, the obvious ones would be refeeding risk, which are a little bit easier and more objective to see through phosphate decreases, you know, potassium decreases, et cetera. So that's a little bit easier to see. Um, Some other risks of overfeeding are um, increases in carbon dioxide production and, you know, increases in duration of mechanical ventilation, which again are a little bit trickier to to measure. Um, But yes, both uh, can occur and underfeeding is definitely more, more prevalent. Are there specific patients that this applies to? So if you were going to implement and it was easier to implement IC into the clinical environment, would you be using it on everybody or is that something that you'd reserve for specific patient groups? Well, I guess in an ideal world, we could apply it to everyone, but again, that comes back to um, manpower and some patients are unfortunately not eligible for indirect calorimetry. Um, but I think the main patients that would um, benefit from the technology would be ventilated patients where artificial nutrition support is indicated, um, and especially in patients that are likely to remain in the ICU for greater than five or seven days. Um, Patient groups where predictive equations are likely to vary considerably from the measured energy requirement, so groups um, like uh, severe trauma patients, TBI patients, patients with extensive burns. Um, Also a tricky group are um, people classified as overweight or obese, mainly because we know body composition and fat-free mass can vary quite considerably um, in the group. So it makes um, estimation of requirements harder in the absence of indirect calorimetry. Um, So I think they're the main patient groups, um, as well as just ones that you think are showing signs of under and overfeeding are in the unit for a long time um, or that you're concerned about. Now, as we mentioned a bit earlier, the devices used with the old metabolic carts and so on were, were difficult to implement in the clinical space, but there's some new devices that are coming out. Can you tell us about those? Yep. Um, so the newest technology that I know of, of is the QNRG device produced by Baxter and Cosmed. Um, And the unique thing about this particular device is that it was developed in conjunction with researchers and clinicians interested in indirect um, calorimetry technology internationally. Um, So that's led to the development of a device that's not only accurate, which is of course the main um, important thing, but also one that is user-friendly. So it's a lot smaller, more portable, um, and quite user-friendly, easy to use. So if that's going to make things a lot easier to get this sort of data, uh, it may be that we start to get better research and so on. What is the research currently saying about the use of indirect calorimetry in ICU patients? So um, 
in the ICU, both the um, American Aspen 2016 and the European Aspen 2019 clinical practice guidelines recommend indirect calorimetry as um, the gold standard of determining energy requirements. Um, but the level of evidence behind the recommendations um, does vary. So to my knowledge, there are nine randomised control trials um, that have been published in the last 20 years that I know of that have assessed the impact of guiding energy provision using indirect calorimetry versus predictive equations on clinical outcomes. Um, and they have varied in size quite considerably. So from 20-ish patients through to nearly um, just over 400. And they've found some conflicting findings um, on the duration of ICU length of stay and also mechanical ventilation. Um, so our group combined these in a um, meta-analysis where we found that the use of indirect calorimetry was associated with an increase in duration of mechanical ventilation. And that was quite an unexpected finding for us. And we feel like it may have been due to potential overfeeding that occurred early on in admission, which we know that now may be harmful, um, and not the use of indirect calorimetry itself. Um, and more recently, there have been two other meta-analyses published, well, one published, one unpublished this year. So one by um, published in critical care by a group in China, which has reported that indirect calorimetry um, significantly reduces short-term mortality. Um, and the largest and most recent one by Darren Halen's group in Canada, um, they've reported a trend, trend towards a reduction in mortality and no difference in other outcomes. Um, so there is some emerging evidence that indirect calorimetry may assist in reducing mortality, but I do think that more data is required in large RCTs adopting a pragmatic approach that do not um, overfeed, particularly in the acute phase of illness. Now, studying the impact of any intervention on mortality in ICU patients is quite challenging. What do you think that the endpoints should be in a study uh, that we use indirect calorimetry for? Um, so that's quite a tricky um, question. I do agree. And I guess even going back to the meta-analysis I mentioned, um, combined they had um, the largest was just over 1,000 patients. Um, so, again, that's where I guess the reason why we feel more research is needed before we can make that conclusion um, on the impact of ICE indirect calorimetry. Um, one randomised control trial has looked looked at functional um, outcomes and did not find a difference. Um, I do think that um, outcomes such as probably body composition would be more beneficial to use if the trial um, extended throughout ICU admission um, as well as functional outcomes um, and they'd probably be better to use for a nutrition trial over mortality. So other than something like uh, a hard outcome like mortality, what do you think the key questions that need to be answered are before indirect cal calorimetry becomes a standard of care? Um, so I think that we still do need to answer whether the use of indirect calorimetry impacts outcomes in comparison to predictive equations. Um, and it's a complex question because it's not only based on the use of indirect calorimetry, but also then what energy or protein is targeted and then what is delivered in practice. 
Um, some other questions are whether we can deliver nutrition within proximity of indirect calorimetry measurements in the clinical unit um, as we'd want to get pretty close to the target if we are to see any differences in outcomes. Um, what proportion of patients are eligible for indirect calorimetry and the optimal frequency of measurements um, as well would be important to know. Um, but I do also think on the flip side that even there is an argument for incorporating indirect calorimetry into practice, even without any further evidence, um, because of, there is extensive data highlighting the inaccuracy of um, predictive equations, um, especially in the intensive care unit. So I do think that that justifies the use of the technology and it is um, considered a gold standard and best practice um, globally at the moment by dietitians and also um, clinicians in the clinical nutrition field. One of, there must be some patients where the uh, calculations associated with indirect calorimetry become challenging. Patients, for example, on ECMO or renal replacement therapy. Can you tell us about those? Um, yep, sure. So um, ECMO is a contraindication to indirect calorimetry testing at the moment because the gas exchange that's occurring not only via respiration but also that over the ECMO circuit itself. Um, but there have been some protocols that have been published by um, some European groups allowing for the measurement um, in ECMO patients by using indirect calorimetry at the lungs and then measuring gas exchange at the ECMO circuit and combining those values together. Um, so we may be able to measure energy requirements in ECMO patients, which would be beneficial um, given that they are considered a nutritionally vulnerable group. Um, and in regards to um, continuous renal replacement therapy, um, again, that's some groups are already using indirect calorimetry in patients requiring um, continuous dialysis. Um, and it's the error rate is probably between three to five percent. So it's not that significant. Um, so it is being used more often in practice now. The other group, of course, is um, non-invasive ventilation. So patients uh, are tending to be managed on non-invasive ventilation strategies for far longer uh, in the ICU than they used to be. Can indirect calorimetry be used in these patients? It can be used in patients by placing a canopy over their heads. The problem with um, the use in non-ventilated patients um, is mainly, I guess, if they get claustrophobic or have difficulty breathing, it can be difficult to capture um, oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide accurately. So it might be a bit trickier to get a steady state, which is when there's a low variation in the oxygen and consumption and carbon dioxide production. So they are a little bit of a trickier group for conducting indirect calorimetry in. And finally, Rana, what... Um, information other than energy can you get from indirect calorimetry that helps you in managing a patient in the ICU? Um, so the other thing that you can get out of the measurement um, is a respiratory quotient. So that looks at um, the ratio of carbon dioxide production to oxygen consumption. Um, and that can give an indication on the um, endogenous substrates, what you're using energy, and also if it can give you an idea on under and overfeeding as well. Um, so if you see a rise in the RQ value can be an indication of overfeeding in some patients and a decrease 
um, is an indication more that fat stores are being used, um, but that is contentious. So I don't um, clinicians don't necessarily use that routinely from a practice point. Um, but I guess the main thing is um, that we use out of it measured energy expenditure, how much energy to provide and how energy requirements change throughout admission. Anna, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your thoughts on indirect calorimetry. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading the free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.